of the scriptures. It's like when you, when you understand the beginning well, it's like you have in your resource library then a bit of a filing cabinet. And you've got some good labels for things so that when you come across another section of scripture, you can think, I wonder what, what this, where does this kind of fit? What's it about? And you can kind of file it in the right drawer appropriately. And if you have a concept and you think, well, what category would this be under? You think, okay, well, Genesis established some of those key categories. So where would I kind of put that? Now, some of you who are students of uh, theology, which is a fancy word for just uh, studying the scriptures and looking at who God is and how he works in our world. Some of you will say, well, Brad, that sounds a lot like a big fancy word called systematic theology. Uh, And so are we doing like systematic theology now? Is that what this is all about? Uh, And so a bit of a disclaimer, that's kind of what this is, but kind of not, because part of the challenge that I have with systematic theology is that systematic theology takes the categories themselves and then makes the texts kind of fit backwards into those categories, as opposed to let the text itself define the categories, and then you can file under those categories. Does that make sense as a bit of a distinction for you? Nod your heads if that makes sense for you. Yes? Okay, so kind of systematic theology, but not really. More kind of, we would use the term probably more biblical theology. Let the Bible define and speak for itself, which we've talked a little bit about uh, over the last couple of weeks. So over the past couple of weeks, as we started off in Genesis, we've gone through Act 1, Scene 1, And uh, we've gone through Act 1, Scene 2. So we've looked a little bit at the creation narrative and the most important words ever spoken in history. In the beginning, God created, or God created the heavens and the earth. And just another reminder about categories is that Genesis 1 is not so concerned with some of the categories that we like to concern ourselves with. And we're going to talk extensively with this uh, with Dr. Brown this evening. And so come with lots of questions and ready to uh, engage in a good, uh, robust discussion on the issue of what does that look like and how do those things play themselves out in our world. This is a very live debate and discussion uh, that continues to kind of press the boundaries and ask questions about what does the interaction of faith and science look like? What are the implications for us as people of faith uh, in terms of our thinking and reasoning and interaction with the world as well? So we reminded ourselves that Genesis 1 is concerned with categories that maybe we're not as hyper excited about, uh, but that it's semi-poetic in nature and that it focuses on the who and the why of creation, not so much on the question of how. And we'll be talking about that more tonight with Dr. Brown. Then in Act 1, Scene 2, in Genesis chapter 2, we have uh, essentially what looks like a second narrative, which is punctuated at the beginning by the text that Pastor Keith preached on last week on rest and on Sabbath rest. And what does that look like? So we have a section where, again, God declares everything good and delights in the relationships and in the perfection of his creation And uh, then we have a repetition, essentially, of what happened in chapter 1. And some people say, well, why in the world is there another, essentially, creation narrative in chapter 2? Didn't we kind of get the point in chapter 1? And probably the best way to look at that or think about that is to think about the four Gospels and the accounts of Jesus' life that we have in the New Testament. Four accounts of a very similar Uh, experience, but they each take a unique lens or a unique angle or perspective on what's going on in Jesus's life. And so this one in chapter two has a much more narrative emphasis. It's much less poetic. Uh, And so then we come to chapter three, where we really get started into the real nuts and bolts of this story. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of Genesis chapter three, I'm going to ask you to just uh, rewind your thinking for just a minute, and we're going to do a little bit of a refresh on your high school English courses. How many of you remember your high school English courses? All right, some of you were very studious and diligent and majored in English in high school and university and such. That was not me, uh, but the, so you'll be a profound help to the rest of us, and we can, we can pick your brains on this. So uh, just a little Q&A then. Uh, for those who remember their high school English, what are the elements of a good story that you get taught in high school English? What do you need in order for a good story to kind of unfold? Yeah, Betty. 
I'm sorry? Absolutely. Some of the basics. Uh, who, what, when, where, why. Like just some basic information that would be provided to you as a person who's approaching this story. Yeah, and we get a lot of that in Genesis 1 and 2. What else do you need in order for a good story to unfold? A protagonist and an antagonist. Yep, fancy literary words. We, we need our characters and then we need a, essentially a problem that comes into somehow. And we need to figure out, okay, how or who or how or what is a problem. Now, think high school English. What are the different categories of problems that can be proposed to move the narrative forward? Anybody remembering this? Man versus man. Man versus self. Man versus what else? Man versus environment. Absolutely. So these are some of the broad picture categories. When you think about movies, they're, you're gonna, they're gonna fall into some of these categories. Do you teach English, bud? Yes. Alright, well, there you go. This is <laughs> profoundly helpful. Alright, so all of you can go for some remedial work afterwards and get it all straight out in your head. So these kind of narrative questions we will often apply to other categories, but it's helpful for us to think in Genesis, because it comes to us as a narrative, to apply some of this type of thinking to the book of Genesis. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, we have a little bit of the backstory. And so our Confession of Faith describes it as this way. The International um, Community of Mennonite Brethren Confession of Faith describes a little bit about what's transpired in Genesis 1 and 2 this way. And says, God, the sovereign Lord of all, created the heavens and the earth through his powerful word. God made humans, male and female, in the image of God to live in fellowship with each other and himself and to be stewards of creation. So that's our backstory. That's the setting. That's some of the uh, questions that you were talking about, Betty, is the who and the what and all of those things have unfolded for us. And it sounds great, doesn't it? It just sounds very nice and peachy. But the problem is we're missing one of the most important elements of the narrative. And that is this sense of conflict or tension or what, how is this story going to run into problems? How are these people going to run into problems? And what solutions are they going to be proposed or presented with? And we know this intuitively and experientially because if we just look at that and say, that sounds really nice. Oh, we live in the image of God. We live in fellowship with each other to be stewards of creation. We know from our experiences intuitively and from being students of history in the world, that all is not right with our world. That something is profoundly wrong in the world. We know this from our personal lives, from brokenness and hardships and disappointments, people that wrong or that hurt us, and we wrong and hurt other people. We make bad choices in our lives. We experience the consequences of that. And not only that, when you think and broaden your perspective to the rest of the world, we think, well, evil exists in the world, doesn't it? Bad things happen to people. People get sick. Some people get very sick and die. There's cancer. There's war in our world and rumors of war. The natural order of things is coming undone, the fabric of our world in some ways. The Bible talks about Romans chapter 1 and says that it groans in anticipation for being set right at some time in the future. And we have tsunamis that hit southeastern Asia and different parts of the world. We have earthquakes that ravage Haiti. We have flooding in Australia. We have avalanches in our part of the world that take people's lives. And all of these things point to the fact and the reality that something is wrong with the world. That there, there's a challenge that exists. That the evil exists in our world. And so we need to think clearly and ask questions of how did that come to be? And what are the implications for us in our lives. And the scope and the time uh, that we have together this morning doesn't necessarily allow for a full philosophical treatment of the problem of evil in our world. But the backstory paints a clear picture for us 
of what it was that God created. And then our natural question coming out of Genesis 2 is, well, then what happened? Because that's not my experience. It doesn't match with it. And so we're invited to ask questions of what happened in our world and what continues to happen in our world. And sometimes I think that skeptics ask better questions than people that grew up with a well-paced understanding of our narrative. I have a friend uh, who's far from God and who asks really, really good questions about the Bible. So she was doing what you would do in Western culture if you encounter a book. Uh, Most of us in Western culture would pick up the book. We would flip to the far left-hand side of the book. We would start there. We would begin reading and experiencing the book, and we would kind of move from left to right in the book. So she began to do this, and she read Genesis 1, she read Genesis 2, she read Genesis 3, and then as she read it through, she came to me and she said, in her own words, so pardon the use of a little bit of language this morning, but she says to me, what the hell, Pastor Brad? She says, you, how could somebody eating a freaking, except she didn't use the word freaking, piece of fruit thousands of years ago, Grew it up so badly for the rest of us. I think it's a pretty good question. If we grew up with the story, we don't ask questions like that. We just think, well, this is how it happens and this is what things go on. But that's the question that we need to address and understand as we try and wrestle with what's wrong with our world today. And it deserves a really good answer. So let's pray as we dive into God's word this morning. God, we say thank you for your word. We say that it's truth and that you have given it to us to guide us, to give us an attitude and an understanding as to how we might think rightly about the world, how we might think rightly about our lives, and how we might rightly think about you as well. And so we pray that as we come to your word as students this morning, that you would teach and instruct us by your spirit, in our dialogues and discussions throughout the course of the morning and throughout our week, and that you would gift us with understanding as to what the implications are for us. In the name of Jesus, your Son, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's dive into our narrative then this morning in the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. I don't know what the headings on your Bible are uh, this morning. Uh, Headings obviously weren't in the original text, uh, also the little numbers that help us find things really quickly weren't there, so it unfolds as a bit more of a rolling narrative for us. And so it might help us to start actually in what we would label as chapter 2, verse 25, is where this section begins. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Then the serpent was the shrewdest of all of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? That's a good question, too. The woman says, Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. She replied, It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Now look what God said In chapter 2, God didn't actually say anything about not touching the fruit at all. She's added that in there as a little bit of commentary. Verse 4, Well, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as you eat it. You will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Doesn't sound so bad. A little bit more knowledge. Verse 6, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, before we go any further, it's probably helpful for us to make a couple of mental notes, or if you've got your momentum journal and you want to take notes 
uh, on the pages that are provided there for you. It's probably helpful to note in our minds a few things, just like Genesis 1 and 2, that we might be deeply interested in in this story, but Genesis 3 doesn't tell us. For example, you'll never see the little phrase anywhere in Genesis 3 that we use as the title for our message today, The Fall, anywhere in Genesis chapter 3. Students of theology and of the Bible use that as a nice handy little catchphrase to help understand and give a bit of a category to what happened next in the story. But really, a fall, when we use that word, quite often we think about it as something that's maybe a little bit more accidental or could have been prevented through some careful tidying up around the place. And maybe if the situation was different, we might have done something differently. But the the word that the text uses in Genesis 3, much more helpfully to help us get a picture of it, a better sense of the word is disobedience. Those who are parents of toddlers will probably understand this language much better. When you read through Genesis 3 and you see the encounter at the end, Students of systematic theology would say, yes, that's that's an accurate representation of the fall. Parents of toddlers would say, Adam and Eve made a very bad choice. Which is really what the narrative wants to help us understand. This was an active, disobedient choice made by Adam and by Eve. It wasn't even so much that they were tripped up or tricked accidentally. In fact, the word in verse 1 that is attributed to the serpent is the word shrewd, and that's the same word that's used in our momentum journaling this past week in the book of Proverbs for people who are wise and who are really smart and astute. And so we sometimes will read that and think, oh, shrewd, that means really bad and nasty. But it's actually not the word that's used there at all. Speaking of which, we're actually told in Genesis chapter 3 very, very little about the serpent. It's very tempting for us Because we have the other, I don't know, how many pages does your Bible have in it? Thousands? Thousands? Oh, mine doesn't even have page numbers. Yeah, it's about another thousand or so pages. We have the rest of the story. So it's easy for us to read the rest of the story and then impart all kinds of theological backfill into Genesis chapter 3 and categories on the serpent from the New Testament, naming him a Satan and such. But Genesis chapter 3 doesn't do that for some very intentional reasons. The text doesn't say anything about why the serpent approached the woman. Some would go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and say, well, maybe she was weaker and more susceptible to his overture. But Genesis chapter 3 doesn't say that. In fact, Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 says quite the opposite, that Adam was right there with her. And we have this image sometimes in our mind of... uh, Eve standing by a tree and a snake kind of coming around and this wicked snake is standing alone and trying to trick Eve into eating this fruit. But all of the pronouns in the text in Genesis chapter 3 are plural. And chapter 3 verse 6 says that Adam was right there with her the whole time. And yet he's completely silent the entire experience. Now, To be sure, this is an open narrative for us. And so the pronouns give us an indication for us that, and it was one of the questions, good questions, that got asked a couple of weeks ago uh, on our Twitter feed and when we were live for Q&A. We asked, well, are Adam and Eve real people or do we just understand them typologically as the first uh, representatives of the human race? But the pronouns here give us indicators that uh, they are real human beings and not merely typological metaphors to explain the presence of evil. In fact, we can draw a lot of conclusions and applications from Genesis chapter 3. Just similar to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we have to be careful, though, which conclusions that we draw, because it's a portrayal of events as opposed to what we often look for in narratives is we want specific timelines for things. And so this also helps us understand that there's an emphasis on the key players, uh, but that it is meant to understand that there's all kinds of detail that we would love to know, but the text doesn't tell us. 
For example, where was this garden? We don't know. We know two of the rivers that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 2. We don't know the other two. Another question that we would love to know the answer to, and we provide ourselves with it in imagery all of the time, is what was the tree like? Was it, did it glow? Was there like a light force, light field around it or something? Was it a special tree? Did it look different? What kind of fruit was it? Was it an apple? Was it a pomegranate? Was it, we don't know. The text doesn't say. So perhaps let's turn our attention from the things that we don't know or that we read into the text to the things that we do know from the text and the things that we can learn. And so just like Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we want to ask ourselves a little bit about what is the author trying to say to us to understand a little bit more about the narrative. And we talked about this last week and the week before, but Genesis is written to help us understand the way in which the world is. It's an explanation or a worldview document to try and anchor things in our mind so that when we look at our world, we have a right understanding of the way that things are. And so the question again is, what happened to this perfect idyllic world that God created and named as good? And the narrative unfolds like any good drama does. There's tension as the opportunity presents itself. And we would use language probably to describe that of temptation. And so we want to look a little bit at that. And in Genesis, we do learn a good bit about how that unfolds both for the first human ancestors and for us. So let's talk a little bit about what do we learn about temptation from Genesis chapter 3, and particularly the first seven verses. One of the first things that we would note is that temptation can only exist for us in a world where choice exists for us. Henry Ford once famously said of his cars, they come in any color you like so long as it's black. If a black car is the only possible outcome, I don't actually have the opportunity to be tempted by another color choice, say, a pink car of some kind. That category simply doesn't exist for me to have a choice for. And so one of the things that we learn about Genesis, about particularly about our world in Genesis 3, is that God could have set up our world in any way that he chose. We're to understand from Genesis 1 and 2, he's the sovereign creator of all that was. He spoke things into existence by his power and might. It was his deal start to finish. He got no input from anyone else as to how the world should be set up. And he could have chosen to set it up in any way that he wanted. But we know that he set it up to give them a choice. And God could have made us robots, could have created humanity to mindlessly do his bidding, but Genesis chapter 1 and 2 says that God wanted to make humanity in a particular way and to shape them in a particular way. And the words that are used is, let us make them in our own image. And being part of made in the image of God is that ability to choose the ability to exercise free will, which is the only thing that can make temptation a possibility for us. If I don't have choices, I can't be tempted by choices. And so Genesis 3 begins to give us a little bit of an understanding of what we would call the discipline of anthropology, an understanding of how the world works and how we as humanity has been created. But the presence of choice alone doesn't help us understand everything that Genesis 3 wants us to know about temptation. Because just the fact that choices exist for me still doesn't necessarily mean that I want to choose them. So not only does choice have to exist, but I also then have to want or have the ability to want to choose something. Now, as parents, 
we do little tricks all of the time. If you're a parent, then you'll know a little bit. Or even if you're a friend that wants to influence another person, you'll understand uh, the way that this works. When we're setting up choices for people, particularly in our families, or if you want to convince somebody to go to, uh, let's say, a particular movie with you, what are some options that you might have to try and convince someone that you want them to do something? Just shout out some options. You could distract them, that's right, so that then they wouldn't know that other choices are available. You could make a, yeah, a commotion. Yeah, what else? You could limit the choices for them. Let's say you're going to a movie. You could say, well, uh, you can, you know, there might be 17 movies playing, but you might only list two for them. Or let's say, uh, thinking particularly as parents about dinner time, there might be 17 options for dinner, but this is what you're going to eat. The choices have been limited for you. Yeah, what else? What are other options that you have at your disposal to get people to make a particular choice? Make the other choice unattractive. So we'll say things like to our, to our kids, let's say there's a show they want to watch, and we've seen the show like thousands of times because it's their favorite show. We'll say to them things like, we could watch this really new and exciting show that we just got the other day, or we could watch the show that like we've watched a thousand times that we all know the It's a really boring show. You don't want to watch that show, do you? You want to watch it? We try and make the choice, the alternative, so unappealing that wouldn't you want to choose the really ex- Our eyebrows go up, we get all animated and excited about this is the choice you'd want to make. This is the better choice for you. What else? What are other options we have at our disposal? We could just pay for it. Yeah. And what do you mean by that, Brian? Sure. Right. That's right. We could, we could exercise a, a dynamic of control in the relationship where we make the choices. We'll say, we, uh, yeah, sure, you can choose any restaurant you want to go out to eat with, but I'm going to such and such a restaurant. I'm happy to pay for your meal if you come with me. Well, you know, we're, we're making, helping make some choices for people in those environments. And so these are just ways to help us see and understand God had all of this and more at his disposal to try and shape the world in a particular way. But just the presence of choice doesn't help explain why our first ancestors made the particular choice that they did. So we have to want what it is that we are being tempted with. If someone makes it so unattractive to us, that we don't want it, then that's not even really a free choice, is it? So, and the text says to us that Eve did want it. So she was able to be tempted to it. One commentator on Genesis chapter 3 puts it this way, Temptation is most effective when it dangles something before us that can easily be interpreted as good. easily interpreted as good. We want to make that choice. And so this particular choice, the knowledge of good and evil, sounds like a good pursuit. So why is this particular choice a bad choice? Well, there's all kinds of reasons that we learn as we go through the narrative. But the one clue that we get here in Genesis 3 is that the serpent gives her a piece of information about the outcome of this choice that creates in her a very desirable option. It says, God knows that your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. You will know good and evil. And Eve wants to know this. She wants to be increasing in her capacities to be like God. She almost in many ways wants to supplant God in their relationship. And the image that we get of temptation in the scriptures as you look in other places, it's a bit like a life cycle, that there's certain things that have to come first in order for the next step to take place. Look in your Bibles at James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. James 1 says this, when each person is tempted, when they are dragged away by their own evil 
desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The verse before that says, No one should think when they're tempted that God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, verse 13 says, and he never tempts anyone else. And so when we think about temptation, we need to think rightly about how that comes to us in our lives and in our experiences. We're usually not tempted to do things that we don't want to be tempted to do. And it's part of our nature, the Bible says, that in Jeremiah it says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Who can know it? And this is an important criteria before we progress any further in our story because many other worldviews offer alternatives to this as a view of human nature. I was watching a, an interview uh, with Pierce Morgan and Oprah this last week on Monday night. And when he asked her about what is it that she sees as her mission in life, she said, my mission in life is to help people find their true selves and become a better person. And he probed into it a little bit more and said, well, is that, what does that mean? So, well, I think people basically are good as human beings. And we just need to find that goodness inside of us and try and uncover that which has been buried, which is a very, very prevalent view in our world today. In fact, that is the predominant answer to the question of what is wrong in our world? What's wrong is that we just haven't uncovered enough of the goodness of humanity. And if we can just put in place strategies to do that, whatever they might be, then if we can uncover more of that goodness, then that will reduce the amount of evil, suffering, and all of other things, categories that we would say are negative in our world. But the Bible puts forward a very, very different worldview. And it says that the heart, that the problem and the, the challenge that we encounter isn't somewhere out there. It's right inside here, inside each and every one of us. To my friend's point, my skeptic friend's question, she said, well, how could this have anything to do with me? And I said, let's just, let's just say that the universe got set up, that every person that ever lived from Adam and Eve through to this juncture in history made the, made the right choice. And all of them said, I don't want that tree. No way. I'm going to make a different choice. She said, as you sit here across from me, I would tell you, I would be the one that would make the bad choice. I would be the one that would screw it up for everybody else if that was even some possibility. I know my heart. I know what goes on in here and in here. And it's not that more goodness needs to be uncovered. It's that there is a whole lot going on in here and in here that is not right. And that my bent is not towards the good. And so Genesis chapter 3 helps us to understand that temptation functions in a way that it calls out to us not just to get sort of uncover that goodness, but it dangles something in front of us that we think is good for us, but is actually calling out to something much darker in our hearts and in our lives. And we see this as we progress in our narrative with the consequences of disobedience and making that choice. In verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. They hid from the Lord God among the trees, and God called to the man, said, Where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Shame has entered into the world. He replied, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat. And then a situation unfolds, much like unfolds for the parents of toddlers. The blame game begins, and a man says, it was a woman who, who you gave to me. 
She gave me the fruit and I ate it. It's your fault, God, and it's, it's the woman's fault too. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? And she said, well, well the, the serpent. The serpent deceived me. That, that's why I ate it. And then God goes on to spell out the consequences of disobedience. And just some of them are a changed self-perception. They come to know more about the shame and the disobedience that comes. Guilt enters the world for the first time, which is the same for us when we disobey. We feel that change in our perception, shame and guilt. We feel it sometimes viscerally if our conscience are, are vibrant enough. Blame enters the world. The devil made me do it. Someone else made me do it. I would have been strong to resist that temptation, but you know, it wasn't my fault, God. The opportunity presented itself was too strong. The New Testament says, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. God's faithful. He will provide a way out for it. We can't stand before God and say, you, you gave me a st- too strong of a temptation that I couldn't handle. Another consequence that enters the world is relational distortions between God and humanity. Prior to this, they existed with fellowship and unbroken communion with each other. But now we see that that relationship, there's a division that comes in it. Also between men and women in Genesis 3.16 God says, you will, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Before this, there's a sense of mutuality and commonality in the relationship between man and woman, and between men and women. But a fundamental distortion enters into that picture now, and that mutuality is broken, and there's strife in that relationship. We also see that man against nature is even altered that between humans and the created order, there's a fundamental reorientation that transpires. And the first readers understood these <coughs> excuse me, metaphors and narratives that were being directed at them to the women, childbirth, to the men, farming. This was their orientation and their lifestyle and their whole worldview shaped around these things. And so they understood and we come to know a different theology of work, that it was good, but now it's going to be hard. And there's going to be things about our lives that are profoundly disappointing in their returns. And the most significant, perhaps, that enters is spiritual and physical death. And the interesting thing here is that the serpent's words are true. The serpent says to Eve, you will not die right now. Eve had construed it in her mind, not to touch the fruit, not to be, because she thought, okay, that's instantaneous death. Touch the fruit, some kind of lightning bolt from heaven will zap me dead right then and there. She reaches out, you can picture, she grabs the fruit. Like, All right, I'm not dead yet. Picking the fruit. All right, I, I touched it. I, I'm not dead, nothing's happening. Eats the fruit, not dead yet. Hey, the serpent was right. Maybe God wasn't right. I'm not going to die. But we see that spiritual and physical death enter into the world. And there's consequences for the action. We see at the end of chapter 3 that uh, there are consequences even for those who do not themselves sin. For the first time, we see that animals have to pay the consequence for Adam and Eve's sin so that they can be clothed by God. And so we see in the words of Milton that paradise is lost. That humans have abused their freedom by rebelling against God in disobedience, which has resulted in alienation and in death. In the rebellion against God's rule, the evil powers of Satan and sin and death have claimed control of the world. That's from our confession of faith. But thankfully, the bad news is not the end of the story. Because one of the most incredible things that we learn in Genesis chapter 3 is that we learn more about God's character. We learn that God is both a provider 
and a withholder. And this pushes into, for us, some of the category mistakes that we tend to make when we think about God. Because for a lot of us, we tend to overemphasize certain aspects of God's character. And so for a lot of people, when they come to Genesis 3, they look at it and say, God is just mean. I mean, he gave them this tree that they were going to eat from, and if he was truly all-knowing, he knew they were going to eat from it, and he made this rule that then they went and broke, and then he set up punishment for a rule that he knew that they were going to break. How is that even fair? And when we approach the text in that way, we emphasize God as a withholder. But what we're doing is we're upending or forgetting about all of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 that we've just read over and over and over and over again. In Genesis 1 and 2, God is revealed to us as the provider, the one who creates and who provides, who sustains in every good thing. Psalm 84 verse 11 says, The Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. And so it's a question of where we place the emphasis. And should we place the emphasis on God putting one tree in the garden from which they could not eat? To that question, we should say no. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 says, God is a God of abundance. God is a God of provision. God placed, we don't know how many, but all of the other trees in the garden for them to enjoy. And we can eat of the fruit of any of them. It's not a God of restrictive ogring with lightning bolts ready to zap people when they come down from the sky. God is revealed to us in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as a God of abundance and provision. The woman overemphasizes God as a withholder. She emphasizes the withholding actions of God. And she distorts the drama of creation, which opens the door for disobedience to her. Because fundamentally, she begins to believe something that is not true about God. She believes that God is keeping something from her to which she is entitled. The same thing happens in your life and in mine. And so we have to ask ourselves the question of what we emphasize. And what we emphasize in our understanding of theology is critically important. Because there are people who start the story here with Genesis chapter 3. And they start the story by saying, you need to understand how horrible you are as a person. And how wretched we are as humans and how completely depraved we are as humans, all of which is true. But that's not where Genesis starts the redemptive narrative. Genesis starts the narrative, and the biblical narrative begins with a God who gives, who provides, who loves, who cares, who nurtures, who is a God of abundance, and who sets up and gives us the options of choice in our world. But as we move into a time of communion, reflection, and response, one of the questions that Genesis 3 invites us to ask is, how do you see God? How do you see God? What is your fundamental understanding and orientation towards God? Do you see God as primarily an enforcer of rules, a judge who has to make sure that you stay in line? Or do you see God as a God of abundant provision in your life and in mine, in our world, even in the midst of the bad choices that we make? Romans 8, 31 and 32 says, What can we say? about such wonderful things as these. If God is for us, 
Who can ever be against us? In the language of abundance, since He did not spare even His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all. Won't He also give us along with Him graciously everything else? The emphasis in Genesis 3, though it is on our disobedience, on our fallenness, on our brokenness, and on how sin has entered our world, still is on God's provision for a way of redemption. That God didn't even spare His own Son. He graciously made a choice to provide for us a way of escape. How do you see God? How do you interact with God in your life and in your encounters with Him? And a related question that comes to us from Genesis chapter 3 is, how does God then see you and see me? What's the fundamental orientation or lens through which God looks at the human race post-Genesis 3? Romans chapter 5 gives us some great insight into this. Romans 5, which we'll be teaching on as we move into Easter in the book of Romans, says, yes, the way in which our world has unfolded and the way in which God sees you, Adam's sin brings condemnation for everyone. That's true. It's a right understanding of what happened. That now sin and death has accompanied and is a part of our world and our experience. But Christ's one act of righteousness, speaking of the death of Jesus on the cross, brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone who embraces it. Because one person disobeyed God, yes, many became sinners. But because one other person, that being Jesus, obeyed God, many will be made righteous. And so the way that God sees you depends and is hinged quite closely on the question of how you see Him and what the status of that relationship is. If this morning you're a person who has said yes to God's leadership in your life and His authority and you have submitted your life and your heart to Him and you desire to walk in relationship with Him, and you would see God in those terms, then God says, because of that choice that you have made to accept what Jesus has done for you on the cross, I see you as righteous in my sight. Not right doing good things all of the time, but even in the midst of all of our sin and fallenness and brokenness, that many will be made righteous because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And it's something that we forget And so it's why we celebrate communion here at Jericho Ridge and the Christian tradition around the world. Because this was given to us to remember and solidify in our thinking yet again how God sees you if you've made that decision to be a child of his, to be a follower of Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning and maybe that hasn't been a choice that you have made. And so the question of how you see God then becomes the question to you which you need to answer first and give an account to God. And maybe today in this place for the first time you want to say, I need to change my fundamental orientation to God. I've been thinking about God as this judge in the sky who holds it gavel over my life at every opportunity waiting to point out where I'm wrong and off base. But if God is a God who of gracious provision of his mercy and his kindness as expressed through Jesus, then maybe I need to meet that God. And maybe here in this place today, you want to do that. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. And so if you want to make that choice here today, we'll have opportunity for you to do that as we move into a time of worship, response, and communion. I'm going to ask those who are serving at the table to make their way there and ask the team to come and lead us in worship, in response, in song. And at Jericho Ridge here, uh, our practice is to uh, set up two stations for communion and to have the bread which represents Christ's body, which is broken for us, to make a way 
a new and living way, the scriptures say, for us to be in right relationship with God. And so when you take that, you're celebrating how God sees you and how you see him in your life. And so take it in profound thankfulness of the work of Jesus on the cross. You can either take it and right there at the tables participate, or you can take it back to your seat and spend some time in reflection and in thought. Because the communion table also gives us an opportunity to say and ask that question, how does God see my life? Are there things in my life that God would ask for adjustments in? And so as you take the cup also, which represents Christ's blood, which was spilled and broken for you on the cross. Ask that question and say, God, is there anything in my life? Search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there's anything in there which would stand in the way of relationship. If there's anything that you're hiding, like Adam and Eve did in the garden, just make it right with God by simply confessing to him. Also, we have those uh, prayer stations available, and Dave and Jackie and our prayer team leaders will be available at the side. And if you want to take a few minutes and say, I've got something going on in my life, which I need to process with someone. I want to talk to somebody. I want to make that choice that Brad talked about today. Then I just invite you to make your way over to the table there. Maybe you have something that you want to celebrate with them and say, we've been working on this in our lives and praying about it, and God has come through in a significant way, and we want to offer praise and thanks to God. Maybe this has been a challenging experience for you in this week and you just want to talk with somebody confidentially about that. Dave and Jackie and our prayer teams would be happy to do that with you as we respond to what it is that God has revealed to us in his word. And so God, we say we come to you with humility in this place. We come and ask you to search our hearts and know us. We come and ask you to reveal yourself to us in a fresh way God. There are many of us who have grown up or who have come to understand distorted things about you. And God, we pray that in this place this morning, you would reveal yourself to us as a God of abundant mercy and grace as we cling to the cross of Jesus this morning. And so, Father, we pray that as we drink this cup and as we eat this bread, as we do this as a declaration of hope for the future, and as a declaration of new life celebrated in right relationship with you, that all of the things that have gone wrong with our world may not be put right right here, right now, all of our lives and the things that are twisted and distorted and the choices we make, but we cling to the hope of the cross that one day you will put everything right and you will restore this world to the way in which you designed. So God, we celebrate and say thank you for that in this place today. And we worship you as Lord and King. In the name of Jesus, your Son, we pray. We say amen. I invite you, whenever you're ready to move uh, to the tables or to move for prayer, you can stand if you'd like as the team leads us in songs of reflection and declaration. You can stay seated. You can kneel, whatever posture you would feel comfortable with. We just invite you to engage at this time.